Welcome to the Trust Your Gut Podcast. I'm your host, Demi Fair. Here we dive into the world of the mind-body connection, exploring the gut-brain axis, microbiome, and nervous system while harnessing the power of intuition and connection to spirit. If you struggle with chronic digestive and mental stress and are tired of trying just one more diet or supplement to address your symptoms, then this is the place for you. Join me as we learn from the world of science and medicine, but also from nature, our own inner knowing, and personal stories. Thank you for tuning in, and now it's time to trust your gut. Hello and welcome back to the Trust Your Gut podcast. I am so excited today because I am recording this episode on my new podcast microphone. For the last two months, I have not had a microphone waiting for my warranty microphone to come through and it finally has. So I'm just really happy to be back to better sound quality because I care about things like that a little bit. So that's my win for today. Uh, I am recording this episode about debunking popular gut health recommendations. So these are the most common recommendations that we hear when it comes to gut health. If you were to Google gut health, how do I take care of my gut? How do I improve my gut health? These are going to be some of the most common recommendations you will get. And this is inspired from a little series I've been doing on Instagram and TikTok where I've been debunking these recommendations. I think I have about eight videos up. And if you like short form videos like that, you may want to go check those out. But otherwise, all that information I'm going to put into this podcast episode here. So you can also listen to it and get that information this way. This will be part one. I'll be making a part two as I'm just going to go over the ones I've already talked about in the short form videos, and then I'll make another podcast episode going over all the other recommendations that I debunk. So the first thing I want to talk about is vegetables, and a lot of the reasons why vegetables may not work for some people or certain vegetables may not work for certain people does have to do with fiber and FODMAPs. And those are things I'm going to talk about more in depth next. But first, we'll just focus on some of the things about vegetables that can be actually difficult for gut health. So the first thing is to consider raw vegetables versus cooked vegetables. So in general, cooked vegetables are easier to digest. So if you are eating a lot of raw vegetables, you might be noticing that you're having a harder time breaking those things down. Of course, there's some vegetables that we certainly want to eat raw, like lettuce or tomatoes or cucumber. Those kinds of things, I think, are not going to cause a lot of issues because they are not so hearty in their fiber amount, and therefore they can be okay to eat raw. 
Same with carrots or some of the heartier, more fibrous vegetables, as long as we're not eating them raw all the time. I think back to when I was in college and I was struggling with a lot of bloating and gas and incomplete bowel movements. And I was eating a ton of like raw kale and broccoli and cabbage salads. And they honestly would make me feel so bloated and gassy afterward. But I was like, this is healthy. Like raw is healthier. There's this idea that raw is healthier because cooking ruins the nutrients and they're only bioavailable in their raw form. Now, some of this is true. There are more nutrients in raw foods, but if our gut can't actually break down those raw foods, we're not going to absorb those nutrients from them anyways. So we're going to be doing our gut way better and our body way better to eat more cooked vegetables. So however you like to cook them, whether you like to steam them or pan fry or bake, roast, whatever it may be, throw into a soup, it's going to make it easier to digest and therefore it's going to be more bioavailable because we're actually able to break it down in our gut and extract the nutrients from the food. Now, some of the vegetables that can be the worst, absolute worst to eat raw and can also be just difficult to digest even when they're cooked are cruciferous vegetables. Those are things like kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, cabbage, right? These are all very hearty, fibrous vegetables that we've probably had the experience of eating before and then having some really bad smelling gas. One of the reasons why we have that bad smelling gas or even that like rotten egg smell we might get when we cook a bunch of broccoli or Brussels sprouts is because these cruciferous vegetables have sulfur containing chemicals in them. And so when those break down in the intestines, they can create other compounds that are like hydrogen sulfide and that's why there's a lot of gas that's pretty smelly that's produced after eating these vegetables. They also contain raffinose, which is an oligosaccharide that humans don't actually have the enzyme to digest. And an oligosaccharide is a type of sugar found in certain foods, um, and it's part of FODMAPs, it's the O in FODMAPs, it's a prebiotic. And so it can be uh, something difficult to digest and it will go through the small intestine and enter the large intestine undigested. And that's where we're likely to get the fermentation and then experience gas and bloating as our bacteria start to ferment the undigested food. And of course, this isn't all bad because these can be excellent sources of food for our gut bacteria, just like FODMAPs are, just like prebiotics are, just like dietary fiber is. But if we are not having good motility, meaning we're struggling with constipation, if we are experiencing a lot of gas and bloating already, if we're having inflammation or leaky gut or we have dysbiosis going on in the gut, meaning we have an overgrowth of bad bacteria, then we might end up feeding some of that bad bacteria. And if things are not moving through quickly enough, 
that food can stay around and ferment longer. And if it's causing us more gas and bloating and we already have that, that doesn't feel good. We don't want to have more gas and bloating. We want to reduce that. So when it comes to vegetables, it's not necessarily the best idea to eat as many vegetables as possible if you're struggling with gut issues. We want to get to that goal of having diverse, varied amount of vegetables in a bunch of different colors in our diet, but we may need to reduce them a little bit or be very specific about the type of vegetables we choose to eat when we're navigating gut symptoms and we're doing some deeper work to bring the microbiome back into balance, bring the nervous system into balance, and address some of the deeper things going on in the gut. So in this case, if you feel that you have a lot of gas and bloating after you eat cruciferous vegetables, one, make sure that they're being well cooked. Please do not eat them raw. If they're well cooked and they still cause a lot of gas and bloating that is uncomfortable for you or they seem to be associated with any other gut symptoms, then maybe avoid cruciferous vegetables just for a little bit or keep it limited. Going slow is the name of the game here. This could also be said about raw vegetables. If you have a lot of gut issues going on, it'd be a good idea to focus mostly on cooked vegetables. Again, maybe if it's the summertime, having some salad with more easy to digest vegetables in the salad is a great thing. Or having, you know, some raw things here and there, not for every meal, maybe not every day, can be okay, right? You have to figure out what works for your body. But if you're noticing a lot of gas and bloating and that there's flare-ups of your gut symptoms, it might be worth pausing on the raw vegetables. A really great way to go about it is to focus on one or two vegetables per meal and having them be cooked And again, avoiding cruciferous vegetables if those are just causing too much problems. We want you to add those back in. We might just need to take a little moment to give the gut a little bit of a break. But the key here is that you're working to figure out what's causing your gut to respond to these things. And typically that's going to be something going on in the microbiome that needs to be addressed. So we can go into this a little bit deeper around looking at fiber. So paying attention to the type of fiber found in the vegetables, the foods that we're eating will also be beneficial for our gut health. So that's taking me to gut health. Recommendation number two is to eat more fiber. This is probably one of the most common things that we hear if you go to a doctor and you're having gut issues or you're told you have IBS, eat more fibrous foods or take this fiber supplement like psyllium husk. If you search Google, fiber is going to be the number one thing that you see. Now, there is a lot when it comes to fiber because we can break it down into two main types, insoluble and soluble. But then we also have to consider prebiotics and FODMAPs and starches and different oligosaccharides. 
So this is going to be an entire episode on its own, I've just decided. But we will talk about insoluble, insoluble fiber now, and then we'll also talk about prebiotics and FODMAPs within this episode. So we have foods that are high in insoluble fibers. Those are going to be things like a lot of our greens, spinach, lettuce, kale, collards, peas, green beans, corn, bell peppers, eggplant, celery, different onions, those cruciferous vegetables that we talked about, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, and it's found in a lot of grains as well, and some nuts and seeds. So those are examples of high insoluble fiber foods. Now, the soluble fiber foods that are lower in insoluble fiber are going to be a lot more of our starchy kind of vegetables. So things like carrots and squashes, starchy tubers like yams, sweet potatoes, potatoes, turnips, rutabagas, parsnips, beets, plantains, yucca, and apples, oats, and some other nuts and seeds. So Kind of the easiest way to point out soluble fiber foods is to think about our starchy vegetables, which tend to be our carbohydrates and are my favorite source of carbohydrates. I love potatoes, sweet potatoes, squashes, plantains. It's my favorite way to get carbohydrates because they just digest a lot better in my gut than grains do. And that's a whole nother thing too. Um... And in general, these tend to be pretty safe starches for people unless they have any issues with FODMAPs, right? So that's how we can kind of easily point out what is the soluble fiber foods. Now, the difference between insoluble and soluble fiber food comes down to how it acts in the gut. So soluble fiber is a type of dietary fiber that dissolves in water. Therefore, it makes this gel-like material in the GI tract, which can be a really nourishing thing if you have an inflamed gut, if you have inflammation or leaky gut. The other thing is that since soluble fiber creates this gel-like material, it slows the movement of food through the digestive tract. So if you have loose stools or diarrhea, soluble fiber can be really helpful for slowing things down and giving more of a chance to break down and absorb the food in your GI tract. The other beautiful thing about soluble fiber is that it can be fermented by bacteria in the large intestine, which produces short-chain fatty acids and other really beneficial compounds that support gut health and whole body health and our microbiome health. So not all types of soluble fiber are fermented, but uh, in general, soluble fiber foods are going to help produce short-chain fatty acids give a really soothing effect to the gut and be really beneficial if we have more loose stools or diarrhea. 
Now, insoluble fiber is a type of fiber that does not dissolve in water. Therefore, it tends to add bulk to our stool and it speeds up the movement of food through the GI tract. So if we have more constipation, insoluble fiber might be more beneficial in that case. Again, however, if we're having some serious issues with constipation and our motility is not good and we're eating insoluble fiber foods, yet they're not making our constipation better, then we might start to notice some more fermentation in the gut and gas and bloating. And therefore, we might actually need to step away from insoluble fiber foods for a little bit and do a little bit deeper gut healing. And if we have loose stools diarrhea, we might find that insoluble fiber foods aren't feeling so good. They might move things through more quickly. And so that might be a time to reduce insoluble fiber foods and increase soluble fiber foods. And again, if we're having inflammation in the gut and we're experiencing a lot of aggravation in that way, so we might be noticing bloating or pain, uh, and we notice that insoluble fiber foods make things worse, uh, that might be another indication to focus on more soluble fiber foods for a while and give a little space to insoluble fiber foods. Uh, There are insoluble fiber types that are fermentable in the gut, um, and those are some things that we will talk about more in depth in the fiber episode about just what's fermentable and non-fermentable, and there's a lot of overlap within the soluble and insoluble categories, so I don't want to go too deep into it now, but In general, soluble fibers are usually fermentable. Certain types of insoluble fibers are also fermentable, but um, not all, not as much as soluble. But in general, to have a healthy microbiome, we want a balance of both soluble and insoluble fibers or fermentable and non-fermentable fibers in our diet. So if this is of interest to you, then keep an eye out for the upcoming episode on fiber. In general, and it's hard to generalize, but soluble fiber can be uh, just easier to digest and more nourishing to the gut over insoluble fiber foods. And with people in IBS, soluble fiber is shown to be much more well tolerated Again, it depends on the source of your fiber. For example, whole grains can cause a lot of issues for people or be a lot harder to digest than, say, leafy greens or some kind of vegetable. Same with beans and legumes can be a lot harder to digest than certain vegetables. So it also really depends on the source. But our goal is to have a blend of both of these in our diet. But if you resonate with anything I've shared already about either of them, whether you have diarrhea or constipation or you experience more bloating and gas, you might want to see what kind of balance works best for you 
And if you're noticing a lot of gut issues and having an inflamed gut, then I would focus mostly on soluble fiber for a while. The other key here is when preparing insoluble fiber foods, it's really important how you prepare them. So again, cooking them can be really beneficial. Chopping, mashing, dicing, blending, really helping to break them up so that that fiber is just a bit easier to carry through the GI tract. All right, let's move on to the third gut health recommendation that we are going to debunk today. This one is all about FODMAPs, and FODMAPs have gained a lot of popularity in the gut health world because they were shown to be really aggravating to the symptoms most commonly associated with IBS and SIBO. And so a low FODMAP diet has kind of become the go-to recommendation of doctors for people who come in showing that they either have SIBO or that they have IBS. So I want to talk a bit about what FODMAPs are and when it's good to follow a low FODMAP diet and when it's not. Because if you are someone who is pretty tapped into looking into gut health, following people in their podcast or on their social media, especially people who are more in the holistic health, functional medicine world, you've probably heard for a while, low FODMAP diet. And now you might be hearing them say, low FODMAP diet isn't the answer and you shouldn't be on it or you shouldn't be on it for very long. So I just want to kind of clear this up a little bit. So first, let's just talk about FODMAPs. They stand for certain fermentable short-chain carbohydrates that are found in a variety of plant foods. And these FODMAPs tend to be poorly absorbed by people who have gut dysbiosis, right? An imbalance in the gut microbiome. And they trigger a lot of the most common digestive symptoms we see. Gas, stomach pain, bloating, diarrhea, constipation. So when we take away these foods, it helps to reduce those symptoms. It can also help reduce a food source for the dysbiotic bacteria, the bad bacteria that has overgrown, right? Because FODMAPs are a prebiotic. They are a really great food source for gut bacteria, but if we have an overgrowth of bacteria that we don't want to be overgrowing, well, then eating FODMAPs can feed it and that might cause that imbalance to get worse. And then again, we're going to experience a lot of those symptoms. So this is when a low FODMAP diet can be really helpful. When you have dysbiosis, and you want to remove a food source for the bacteria for a short period of time while you go in and do deeper work to help nourish the gut, nourish the microbiome, work on the nervous system, and help to eradicate and rebalance what's going on in the microbiome. So in general, it's supposed to be a short-term diet however long it goes is really dependent on you and how your dysbiosis is and what is going on in your gut brain and in your microbiome. But 
we don't want to be on a FODMAP diet for too long. This is true because of the fact that these are really great prebiotic sources, really great sources of food that help feed our gut bacteria. And being on a restricted diet sucks, especially a FODMAP diet when it's in all these different random fruits and vegetables that can be hard to keep track of, that can be really hard to eat out or eat with friends or whatever. So we want to do this for a short period of time. And as with anything, the key is to go slow when we introduce high FODMAP foods. Now, when we're on a low FODMAP diet, we can still have a high fiber diet and still feed our good bacteria. It's just, again, coming down to how restrictive do we want to be and just not wanting to cut out variety and diversity. The ultimate goal, again, with vegetables and fiber is to be able to have a wide variety and diversity of these foods in our diet, since they all give us a lot of different benefits for our microbiome. And within a low FODMAP diet, you might find that certain high FODMAP foods really trigger your symptoms and others are totally fine. So it can take a little experimenting when you start to add things back in. And ultimately, this is best to do with the guidance of a practitioner because it can be a lot and it can be confusing. Personally, I've done low FODMAP at different periods. And one of the times it was most helpful was after I ran a stool test and confirmed that I had really bad, bad, bad dysbiosis going on, an overgrowth of a lot of dysbiotic bad bacteria, too little good bacteria. Also, I had candida overgrowth. And so working with my practitioner, I decided to do a low FODMAP diet for a little while uh, just to kind of help reduce that food source to a lot of this bacteria that was severely overgrown while I went in and did a biofilm protocol and then a uh, antimicrobial protocol that I did in a very specific sequence. And um, it helped me tremendously to do the low FODMAP bit. And I am not one to be into restrictive diets after struggling with that for so much of my young adult life. Um, But this was one case where I found it to be extremely helpful for not only reducing my symptoms, but um, helping me do some of the work to bring things back into balance by removing that food source. And again, I did it for a certain period of time that was right for me before starting to add those things back in and then not having a reaction to them, which was a good indication that I had done some good work for my um, microbiome. I recently met someone who uh, I found out she was on a low FODMAP diet. And when I asked her how long she's been doing it, I think she said like six or seven years, Um, and she has not been able to really add things back in. Um, Again, uh, she's had a really hard time finding answers to what's going on in her gut. Uh, She's gone through all the tests, apparently, um, to rule out Crohn's or anything else. And the thing that has been helping her, and this is so interesting to me, has been a very low dose of an antidepressant, 
which to me indicates that there's something going on with the neurotransmitters and the communication of the gut brain. So that is something I hope doesn't have to happen for a lot of people of needing to avoid certain foods for that long period of time. Um, And I know that the journey can be hard to pinpoint what is actually causing this reaction. Um, I would be curious, you know, when I meet people... (laughs) and they're not like interested in being a client, I'm not going to pry into things, but I would definitely be curious uh, what kind of work maybe she's done around the nervous system uh, and her experience with chronic and traumatic stress, but um, it was very fascinating to hear that the medication working for her was a low dose of an antidepressant. This is a little sidetrack from FODMAP, but um, hearing how long she's been on low FODMAP was really shocking to me. So that all being said about FODMAPs, again, uh, it's so dependent, but overall, um, they are a really great food source for feeding bacteria, but if you have dysbiosis, they might cause your issues to be worse. If you have SIBO, they might cause your issues to be worse. They could be poorly absorbed in the intestine. So if you have IBS or just a flare-up of gut symptoms going on, they can cause your symptoms to be worse. And so it can be worthwhile to do a bit of a low FODMAP period. Uh, But again, the key is that you're not just doing the low FODMAP diet and being like, okay, well, this is going to fix everything because that's not the solution. That's, again, just dealing with the symptoms so that you can feel better while you go in and do the deeper work. And that's the key here. Okay. I am going to move on to prebiotics. Now, probiotics will be our last thing that we're talking about, but prebiotics have really taken a spotlight when it comes to looking at supplementation for gut health. And you'll see a lot of probiotic supplements also include prebiotics with the claim that prebiotics are what feed our probiotic bacteria. Therefore, we need to have prebiotics in our diet and maybe in the probiotic supplement so that they have a better chance of colonizing or that we're feeding our good bacteria. So let's break down prebiotics a little bit. So Different dietary fibers and starches can act just like prebiotics, but we also have some particular plant-derived molecules that are prebiotics, and this is going to be what we commonly see added to supplements. So that's going to be FOS, and inulin might be the most common ones that you see. The other common one we'll see is goss, and then of course, uh, resistant starch as a very particular starch that is touted as a very uh, great thing to feed our gut bacteria. Now, FOS and inulin are most often found in things like onion, chicory, garlic, asparagus, banana, and artichoke. And as I said, these will be um, some of the most common ones that you'll see added to a supplement. Um, If you also have noticed like Olipop, um, 
or certain drinks, or I think there's even like puff balls, and there's a ton of different things on the market these days that have probiotics added to them. You'll see that um, like in Olipop, it's a lot of like chicory and inulin or like the dandelion kind of chicory like coffee alternative. So if you've ever had those things and then you just feel like really gassy and bloated afterwards, it's probably because you're not tolerating uh, the FOS or inulin very well. The reason being is that these can be highly effective prebiotics, but they can also feed bad bacteria. So again, if we have dysbiosis or SIBO, then they may be feeding those conditions, making things worse and causing more gas and bloating and whatever kind of symptoms that you're experiencing. Goss, on the other hand, is shown to feed primarily beneficial bacteria and it is going to be a better option if for any reason you need to take a prebiotic supplement. And goss is found most often in legumes and dairy products and some root vegetables. Now, uh, there's also resistant starch, and that has gained a lot of popularity. People will talk about having raw green banana flour or raw potato starch and There's some resistant starch found in um, foods like more uh, unripe bananas and things like that. But I would say if you want to get more resistant starch in your diet, one of the best ways to do that is to eat uh, potatoes or white rice that have been cooked and then cooled and eat them in that cooled state. Uh, White rice and potatoes tend to be a pretty safe starch for people that don't trigger a lot of symptoms that are easy to digest. If you have blood sugar issues, that's a different story, but um, these are going to be good sources of resistant starch that probably won't cause a lot of bloating and gas, whereas adding like raw green banana flour might. So again, name of the game is always go slow. Um, If you want to add in some of these things and if you notice a bit of reaction, just kind of reduce and Um, pull back a little bit, doing it less in in your week or less of an amount. Now, the thing about prebiotics is I don't think you need to take a supplement. I, I recommend focusing on getting whole food sources of prebiotics. Again, dietary fiber is an amazing prebiotic. So just take everything we've just talked about in terms of fiber and vegetables and utilize that in getting your prebiotics. Now, Uh, There's some cases where you may work with a practitioner and it's become clear that you need to take a prebiotic supplement for whatever reason, but um, I think you can get most of everything you need from a whole food source unless you have a specific reason you need to take a prebiotic supplement. And if you're going to, maybe Goss is the best way to go. But again, this is something that is going to be bio-individual and you'll need to work with someone to really understand what's going to be best with you. And it might be a little trial and error to see what feels good and what works best. Okay, for the final gut health recommendation that I'm going to debunk today, we're going to talk about probiotics. Now, if there is like a number one topic that comes up around gut health, that goes hand in hand with fiber, that's like recommended, that is just touted as a 
beneficial thing for gut health, it's probiotics, whether that's food or whether that's supplements. Now I'm going to focus on probiotic supplementation. And I have a couple main things to focus on. So first, I want to talk about the main thing to look for in probiotics. So we need to debunk the idea that all probiotics do the same thing. They do not. Probiotics are made up of different species and strains. So within those different species, there's going to be different strains. You'll notice strains because they'll be after the name. So you might have lactobacillus, acidophilus, and then you'll see some sort of combination of letters and numbers listed after that. Could be something like 3C12. So that's going to tell you the species, that lactobacillus or bifido, and then it's going to share the strain afterwards. And this is important to know because different strains have different benefits. And therefore, it's not better to take a probiotic that has billions of CFUs, which are colony-forming units, versus one that has more strains than another, it's really more about the quality over the quantity, right? So what type of strain is in the probiotic? And is it the right type of strain that you might need for what you're dealing with in your microbiome? And yeah, that's not easy to figure out. So I hope to support you all with that. It's something that I definitely can support clients in and I'm going to have a whole section on in the Gut Brain Healing Toolkit. Um, But something that if you're working with a practitioner or you want to do a little research into, like if you struggle with constipation dominant IBS or if you have dysbiosis, if you have something going on, you might, or it could be even like an autoimmune issue, something with joints, any other kind of health condition, maybe seeing if there's a certain strain that has been shown to be beneficial to that health condition. This is the same thing that goes for anxiety or depression as well. So a big part of finding the right probiotic for you is knowing what's going on in your microbiome and what kind of strains might benefit different uh, mental health um, conditions or struggles or different um, autoimmune issues or different things that might be going on in your physical body. So it is important to know that if you have say, like a overgrowth of dysbiotic bacteria or an overgrowth of, you know, SIBO, understanding what probiotic is going to work well for that. There's some that could be aggravating to your SIBO symptoms or your dysbiosis symptoms and can further aggravate some level of imbalance. Um, It is also possible to have an overgrowth of good bacteria too much of the beneficial bacteria in your gut, which is another form of dysbiosis. And so certain probiotics might aggravate that further. 
So I say this over and over again, but we just really need to know for the most part what's going on in the gut. In general, for general gut health, a good quality probiotic um, will help support the overall environment for the indigenous bacteria of your microbiome to flourish. And that's overall what we want to happen from any supplement we take, any probiotic, um, and from the diet that we have. So a lot of probiotics out on the market today are crap, really. Um, And there's a couple things to look out for. So we want to see that they list the species strains. So not just um, the species, right, the lactobacillus, but that it also has the strain after it the combination of numbers and letters so that we know what we're getting. Um, Ideally, it is evidence-based. They've done studies on this specific probiotic blend, these specific strains in this probiotic. We want to see that it's been done on human trials. It's going to be different than on rodents or animals. And uh, independent positive reviews is also going to be a good thing from people that have been using it and giving positive reviews that it's working for them. So I have a couple that I like that I've utilized myself or recommended to clients. And I just want to invite you that if you've found a probiotic that fits the bill, of what I just shared, or it's just really helped you, or you're curious about it, and if it might be a good one for whatever's going on for you, reach out to me through Instagram or Facebook and share, because uh, there's always new supplements hitting the market, and I try to keep up to date, but uh, I'm trying to keep up to date on a lot of things, and research can become pretty overwhelming. So I'm always curious to hear what works for people and what they like or what they have questions about. So um, I get a little hesitant to, you know, broadly recommend uh, supplements just because of everything I just said. It's really bio-individual or it can be really bio-individual for what's going on. But I will uh, share a couple that I recommend for hitting like quality and evidence-based Uh, and all of the above, human trials. So one I've used a lot myself is Mega Spore Biotic. There is some controversy around one of the specific strains that it does have in it that can maybe cause some issues from people. And I've just been looking into some controversy around what some um, people think about their, you know, research methods and whatnot. Uh, but I know it's been really helpful for a lot of people and personally it's been helpful for me, but at times it also seems to trigger my psoriasis. So this is one that I would just kind of take a caution with and work with a practitioner on. You can't order it without a practitioner anyways. So ideally you're working with it under the help of a practitioner. Um, that and Corebiotic, I haven't personally used, but I've heard a lot of good things about Corebiotic. Both of those are spore-based probiotics, which I will 
um, maybe go into more depth on in a different episode, more specifically on probiotics, because there'll be a lot more to share. But spore-based is not like the typical uh, bifidolactobacillus probiotics that you see in supplements. These are um, the bacteria that is most commonly found in soil. And so the idea is that these are bacteria that we would have gotten in our gut microbiome if we were still living a little bit more closely with the earth, um, eating food freshly out of the soil, out of the ground, like interacting in a not as sterile environment as we tend to be in now. Um, And they have a lot of benefits for supporting the microbiome. In terms of a more like a broad spectrum probiotic that we might be more familiar with. Uh, Seed is one that has uh, really beautiful evidence-based trials, human trials, uh, a lot of different species and strains, and I've um, also heard a lot of wonderful, wonderful things about seed. So that might be another one to check out. So another part about probiotics that I wanted to debunk is the idea that they are not able to withstand stomach acid or bile salts and that most of them end up in the colon dead. So this is a little mixed. Now our stomach acid and bile salts can kill off some probiotics and you will see probiotic brands will be claiming that you know they have enteric coating of their capsule or a time released capability of their capsule that they make it to the colon alive and that is something important to look out for in a probiotic do they have some way that they ensure the deliverability of the probiotic bacteria? Because you can buy some probiotics, like poor quality probiotics off the shelf that are probably dead on arrival. They're dead at the point that you take them off the shelf. But there's also a lot of species that seem to withstand the stomach acid and bile salts, and a lot of them are really common ones that we're going to see in probiotics. So you can also just look at utilizing some of these species and strains that are shown to withstand the harsh environment of the stomach. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and name some of these hardy species and strains because, um, well, one, if I just name them, it might be hard to know how to spell them um, because they are a bit funky. Um, So if you're interested to know some of these hardy strains, you can go to the link in the show notes and I've linked the video that I made where in the caption I name, I've written the the species and the strains. So um, also another thing here when we think about uh, the probiotics arriving to the colon dead, it also brings up this uh, idea that probiotics don't actually colonize the gut. And this is actually true. Because if we take just a probiotic supplement or eat probiotic food, 
that doesn't mean those probiotics are going to become part of our microbiome. And in studies, it is a little bit different for people. It's not black and white, but in general, they don't colonize in the gut or become part of our microbiome, but they are still shown to produce a lot of wonderful health benefits even while they're in transit. So that is a true point that you might hear about probiotic supplements. Okay, so here is the last bit about probiotics that I want to talk to as part of this episode, and I want to debunk the common recommendation to take probiotics if you have to take antibiotics. So sometimes you'll hear that if you're taking antibiotics, you should be taking probiotics at the same time or take probiotics right after, and it's actually been shown um, in one particular study. So of course, one study has its, you know, faults. It's not perfect. None of science is, but it was shown that uh, those who took a probiotic either during or right after antibiotics actually delayed the return of their native microbiome by up to five months, whereas those in the placebo group had a return of their native microbiome much quicker. And in looking deeper into studies that showed a benefit to taking probiotics during antibiotics or right after, really the only benefit that came about did not have to do with the return of the native microbiome, but it just helped reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea or the possibility of a C. diff infection. And this was actually only in a small number of people. So this is really interesting because I have definitely thought this before. And I had appendicitis where I had to go through a lot of antibiotics, including a three-day IV of antibiotics in the hospital. And I was talking to my naturopath who specializes in gut health. And I was like, what do I do after all of this? Like freaking out. And he told me that I needed to wait and give the microbiome some time to recalibrate. And that was the first I had heard of that. And we made a specific plan on when to start bringing in probiotics. And this was a point that I also utilized prebiotic supplementation. This might be a really good time to do that. And it was really fascinating because upon testing my gut again at a certain time after, uh, waiting from probiotics and letting my gut do its natural recalibration and then utilizing the supplements, I actually had all my beneficial bacteria grow back. And in the past, it was overgrown. So now it was in good numbers. And the dysbiotic bacteria was still overgrown, which was kind of amazing to me that I had all those antibiotics and it didn't kill off all the dysbiotic, but that's where there's some other things indicating what could be going on that I'm not going to get into. But um, that was my first experience in seeing that being true. And so in looking into deeper studies on this, and I'll actually link the study into the show notes so you can see, um, it is going to be likely better to give your gut some time to go through its own recalibration before you bring in any probiotics. Now, of course, there's still so much that we as humans don't know about our microbiomes and are still learning. And this seems to be, you know, one of those things that's going to be further studied. But 
when I consider this and why this might be, I just think about nature and like most things in nature, nature will find a way to find homeostasis. It's extremely intelligent and it's really the same thing in our bodies. And our gut is just like any other ecosystem in the environment and it is going to strive to find homeostasis. And if it's supported in doing so, then it will likely be able to do that on its own. So we can think about the gut microbiome just like any other ecosystem. We have native species, which are like our beneficial bacteria. There may be invasive species, which is like the dysbiotic bacteria. And in general, the native species are in a good number of population, keeping that invasive species in check. And in this healthy ecosystem, there's enough of a food source for all the species, especially the native species. And it's a healthy ecosystem. The soil is healthy. The air, the water, the plants growing out of the soil is healthy. Uh, There's going to be some competition, of course, between species and different things, but it's all within that natural balance of the ecosystem. Now, what can happen in an ecosystem is that there could be something that comes in that causes destruction or even completely destroys it. And this could look like things um, like levels of pollution or forest fires or logging. And we can think of antibiotics as being something like that that comes in and causes sometimes what might be like a mass destruction to the microbiome. Um, It's going to throw things out of balance and it could end up, you know, killing off a lot of the native species. Um, It may do so and then there's the food source um, is going to the invasive species and now they get a chance to overgrow. Uh, And when we think about this and we think about it in terms of the environment, say something happened and now this ecosystem is destroyed and we wanted to help restore it. Now, how would we go about doing that? Would we just come in and plant a bunch of, you know, good species (laughs) that are not necessarily invasive, but they're maybe not like the the native species that are meant to be there, the, the biodiverse species that are meant to be there. Like probiotics are, are good species. Some of them are going to be the same as the ones in our gut, but they may not be the exact like native species that are in our gut or like the exact same strains or the exact same balance, right? So would we just come in and implant those? Well, we could, and that might be all right, but there's a couple things there. One, that might prevent the, the true native species from being able to, you know, come back and have enough of a food source. And two, are we just going to plant these species into soil that is unhealthy, um, into an, env- an environment that's been destroyed, that there's not going to be, you know, like a healthy source of water or healthy soil for these plants to grow. Like that's not going to be very good. So this is where I think maybe 
when we take antibiotics or after antibiotics, we want to look more at like, okay, how do I support this ecosystem? How would I support the soil of this ecosystem? And a lot of that's going to come down to diet. And a lot of what I talked about earlier in this episode around uh, fiber and certain foods that we want to eat to help feed uh, the gut bacteria and help support them in growing. And uh, overall, just like a nutrient-dense diet uh, and and the things that we want to eat that are going to help produce short-chain fatty acids, uh, different fibers that, um, again, I can go into deeper on on a different episode. And lifestyle things are going to come into account here too, right? When we're thinking about the body ecosystem. So we're looking at nutrition, you know, sleep, movement, hydration. And of course, we're always going to be looking at nervous system health, nervous system regulation. Um, How is the whole ecosystem supported? Is there, you know, a healthy soil there? And we can think of the mucosal lining as healthy soil too. You know, what can we do to support the healthy mucosal lining of the intestine so that we can ensure, you know, there's a really intact soil for this amount of native species that we want to come back to come back on its own and just kind of give it an opportunity to recalibrate itself and then bring in the extra support. So I think sometimes looking at nature can really help us understand more about our bodies since our bodies are nature and uh, our society tends to really separate those things. So those are the common gut health recommendations that I wanted to debunk today and it's a lot of different information packed in one episode. So I... um find myself being inspired by some of these topics to dedicate a whole episode to, as I already mentioned, talking more about all the different fibers and what they do in our gut and for our microbiome. And um, as I mentioned, that is going to be something that is a part of the Gut Brain Healing Toolkit and laid out in the section where we go over the microbiome. Um, and talking a lot about the different strains of probiotics and different prebiotics and um, things like this, trying to take all this really confusing information that can actually really contradict each other and just see what the evidence is saying and what also lines up with the earth (laughs) and what else happens in the earth and trying to make it as easy to understand and straightforward as possible. Uh, That's something I'm continually trying to do for myself to help support my gut and in turn want to offer that out to you all. So um, if there was anything in this episode that you're like, man, I really want to know more about that, please reach out to me and let me know. It's awesome to hear feedback and know what people want to hear and I can make episodes about that. And um, yeah, there will be more to come on debunking other popular gut health recommendations. And be sure to go check out the videos if you want to be reminded of any of these little tidbits. So I have two announcements before I sign off here. 
The first is that I have a brand new quiz done. It's called Gut Issues. Find out if your nervous system is the cause. And as you all know, if you listen here, I talk a lot about nervous system regulation and chronic and traumatic stress being really the root cause of a lot of our chronic gut brain issues and being really one of the most important things that we need to look at if we have these kinds of symptoms. And so I wanted to create a quiz that people could take to find out what their likely dominant nervous system state is just to get a deeper insight into what that's all about and how that affects their digestion as well as their mental and emotional and other physical states. And then I provide a video with action steps to utilize to help regulate out of that nervous system state and prepare your body to be more in a rest and digest to improve your digestion and bring more regulation to your nervous system. So if that's of interest to you, there's a link down in the show notes. And just a reminder that I'm gearing up to open up my group program, Gut Brain Healing Toolkit. Yes, you're going to hear about me, hear me talk about this a lot because um, I'm working really hard to create what I believe to be just the most comprehensive, holistic approach to healing our gut brain symptoms. And so I bring forth the science on our gut brain connection and vagus nerve, neurotransmitters, everything about the microbiome, the entire digestive process, and everything nervous system regulation and trauma, make it easy to understand and then provide a ton of practical tools that you could use every step of the way for increasing your vagal tone, improving the gut-brain connection, uh, understanding what's going on in your microbiome, and addressing it. A lot of the stuff we talked about today, understanding those things for your own microbiome, Uh, Each person will get a test so we'll know what's going on in your microbiome and then a ton of tools for helping to regulate your nervous system and it's really taking a lot of what I do with one-on-one clients and putting it into this whole package where you get to learn everything. You still get a one-on-one with me. You get the support of a community. We have live calls to go deeper. We get to do somatic experiencing together. And then you get this for life. So as we continue to learn more about all these topics and I update anything in the modules, you'll have all that information. You can always be a part of the community and you can always join in on the live calls to continue utilizing all this information and all the practical tools along your healing journey. That also means any new practices, tools, resources that I create or come across, those will be uploaded as well. So it's really like the hub of Trust Your Gut. So I'm really excited to get this out into the world. And it is going to be offered for 50% off for the first people to go through the program. I'm going to keep it smaller limited number of people and you'll be the founding members providing feedback along the way so I can really make it the best program it can be and is in turn I want to thank you with 50% off so if you're interested I really encourage you to get on the wait list because those will be the first people to be notified so thank you so much for tuning in I have some exciting interviews coming up that I'm so excited to share with you all and uh, I'll be working on that fiber episode All right, I hope you have a regulated and resilient day.
Before you go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, leave a rating or review, and share it. That helps it reach others who will benefit from this information. So much gratitude for you. Have a beautiful day.